Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Bats don't often get the credit they deserve for the important role they play in our native ecosystems where they serve as pest exterminators and crop pollinators. In this episode, I'm talking to biologist Rodrigo Medellin. Rodrigo fell in love with bats when he held one for the first time at the age of 13. And today, Rodrigo is known as the Batman of Mexico. He's also a professor of ecology and conservation at the Institute of Ecology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He's especially known for making significant contributions to taking the lesser long-nosed bat off the endangered list in Mexico and the United States. This is especially significant for me personally, because this year federal authorities took off 23 species from the endangered list because they went extinct. And I felt a deep, deep sadness for many days when I heard that news. So I am eternally grateful to people like Rodrigo. It is extremely rare for anyone to advocate for a particular issue to see change in their lifetime. And for that, I am in absolute awe of what Rodrigo and his peers and colleagues have been able to achieve. So the other reason I am in awe of Rodrigo is because of his success in taking an interdisciplinary approach to conservation, he has been able to effectively translate his research to a variety of stakeholders, from politicians to agave farmers, to literally every single person he has come across in his research journey, which has then resulted in the protection of vast lands through which bats migrate and sustainable farming practices. We can be thankful of bat protectors like Rodrigo, whose work directly contributes to literally the cotton in our clothes that we wear to the tequila that we drink and enjoy. So in addition to talking about the importance of bats, we also talk about how Rodrigo is helping build coalitions and share knowledge and other resources, including financial resources with other bat experts across the world who are part of local community efforts. This is so important because we want to be able to nurture talent and interest within local communities for local environmental issues. All right, so let's just get into this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rodrigo, for being here on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. It's an honor really to have you. So today we're going to be talking about bats and how awesome they are and how you found yourself working to protect them. Before we begin our conversation, we typically start with our first question here, which is what role has nature played in your life? Thank you very much for the invitation, Sapnites. I'm really thrilled to be here with you today. I have to say that regardless of who you are, who we are in the world, nature plays an absolutely crucial role in everybody's lives around the world. But in my particular case, that crucial role has taken an even greater presence because from my very early age, I started getting in touch with nature in many different ways. 
So today I can tell you that I am who I am thanks to nature. We all are who we are thanks to nature. But in my case, because I had the opportunity to really get engaged in nature conservation and spend the rest of my life in that, then that makes it even stronger. Nature and I, I feel like I'm one with nature right now. Yeah. So just curious to know a little bit more about your origins of how you grew up is, I read an article in the National Geographic that you were determined to be a bat biologist when you held a bat uh, for the first time at just 13 years old. And it made me wonder, how did you find that bat and who put it in your hand? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a little bit of an offbeat kind of story. And it's a little long, so I'm going to have to abbreviate here. So again, since the day I was able to put two words together, mammals and wildlife have played a key role in my life. I've always wanted to be a biologist. I've always wanted to learn more about the natural world. And all my presents, all my outings were always to see animals, to learn about animals, to read about animals, etc. And then in, uh, when I was like 11 years old, there was a national TV contest called the 64,000 Peso Contest in Mexico. And I told my mom that I wanted to appear there, that I wanted them to ask questions about mammals and that I was going to be able to answer those questions without any problem. My mom, bless her heart, after a few attempts on my part, she took me to the producers and the producers told her that this was a show for people who had real information in their head and they were going to showcase that information. So my mom told them, well, why don't you ask the kid a question? They started asking questions to me, and I started responding and responding and responding. And pretty soon they said, well, congratulations, you're the first kid in the show. (laughs) Then uh, I started appearing every Saturday, primetime, 7 p.m. Everyone is watching. There's only three channels in Mexican TV, including the dean of Mexican mammalogy. And this man called me to my home, and he said, well... If you want to continue learning about mammals, why don't you come over to the Institute of Biology of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and I will keep teaching you about mammals. Of course, that was a dream come true for an 11-year-old, and I started going there. And it really was a new universe for me that really told me that that was my calling. That was where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. In uh, a couple of years later, I was going to the field with some of the professors at that institute, and one of them took me to a cave and put the first bat in my hand, and that really blew my mind away. I really went crazy just looking at the bat, looking at every feature of the bat, looking at the feet, at the eyes, at the legs, at the mouth, at the teeth, everything. And I found all of that fascinating. He kept asking questions about what do you think this bat does in the environment? What do you think it feeds on? Why do you think it has big ears? I distinctly remember the species and so on and so forth. So it's from then and having in mind that uh, bats have a most unfair negative public image and they were very little known. There was little, very little information about bats in Mexico and abroad. I said, well, this is me. This is, this is where I want to spend the rest of my life. And I just kept going. And today I can tell you that I'm still that 13-year-old 
with the same passion, with the same interest. I cannot stop thinking about new ways of understanding and learning about that. Yeah. What was the species that you first held? That was the California nosleaf bat, Macrotus californicus. I have it branded in my head. And for whatever reason, only two weeks ago in the Pinacate Desert, I caught it again. Oh. It was there and it was like two old friends getting together again. Oh. I said, hi, my friend, how are you doing? <laughs> and he didn't even try to bite me or anything. He just said, well, okay, will you let me go please now? Yeah. <laughs> and I let him go. They are quite adorable animals. I saw my first bat when I was living in Austin and we were on a walk with my dog in my neighborhood. And my dog was like very curious about something in the bushes. And I was like, what is going on? And so like I looked under the bush and it was a female juvenile and she was laying on the ground. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a bat. I've never seen a bat in person. (laughs) But it was so cool because we have a bat refuge in Austin. And thankfully, they gave me instructions on how to carefully and safely pick up the bat put her in a box and take her to the refuge. It turned out she was the Mexican... Freetail bat. Freetail, yes. So cute. Anyways, poor thing was dehydrated from the heat during the summer and couldn't fly any longer, but I'm sure she's fine now. But that was a really cool experience. Amazing animals. What you just said really marks people around the world. Every time people tell me about their first encounter with that, they get fascinated and they remain engaged in good PR and and helping bats around the world. So so thank God for that female that you found that you became a bat defender. Really? I mean, I do Google pictures of bats from time to time and still follow like they're just yeah fascinating. And here we are, you know. I know. I was like, I must talk to Rodrigo. The bats became something that you kind of dedicated your life with. And growing up, you mentioned in a documentary on the BBC that you had vampire bats in the bathroom. (laughs) And you said that you would give them blood from cows and yourself. Tell us more, please. (laughs) Yes, sure. Well, I mean, again, bats are really fascinating. And I will never, never thank my family enough, my parents and my sister specifically, about how they really promoted and nurtured my interest in the natural world. And they were able to put up with me bringing all kinds of crazy animals to the house, including vampire bats. And I put those vampire bats in a bathroom that I used to share with my brothers. Because they're vampire bats, they're fascinating animals. They're really fascinating. But of course, when you have them there, they splatter blood all over the place. So that <laughs> that bathroom looked like a, out of a Hitchcock movie, really. A murder scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they're really fascinating. They knew me because I was the one who fed them. And they didn't like my brothers, but they would come up to me and say, hey, how you doing? Where's my blood, you know? <laughs> I have to go to the to the vet school here at the University of Mexico, and I'll ask the vets to let me bleed a cow from a big vein that cows have down their bellies, and then catching the blood in a bucket, and then beating the warm blood coming out of the cow with my hand so that 
fibrin, which is the protein that makes it coagulate, it would not let the blood coagulate so that the fibrin in contact with the air, it collects in little rubber bands that you take out, uh, they flow to you, take them out from there, and then you have that defibrinated blood ready to go. So I would take the defibrinated blood home, and then I would go to my mom's fridge and remove the ice trays from the ice chest, throw away the ice, replace it with blood, put it back in there, and (laughs) thaw one cube of frozen blood per vampire bat per night. And, you know, my dad was in the ice cream business, so my entire freezer was full of ice cream and blood. And blood. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then one day I ran out of blood. There was no more blood, and I needed to keep, for some observations that I was doing, I needed to keep the vampire bats for a couple of extra days. And my sister, who's a medical doctor and who was an amazing influence all my life, she helped me bleed myself. And then take, again, the fibrin out of my own blood and then give that blood safely to the vampire bat. Now, that is a true sibling, really. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So there's this misconception, like when we were growing up, we were thinking like that bats only feed on blood. But as I've done more reading about them, like they're only just two or three species that actually drink blood and they mostly just drink blood of animals. And even the animals don't know when the bat is feeding on them. How do they get such a bad rep? Well, it's one of those specializations that you only find in mammals. Vampire bats are only native to the new continent, to the Americas. And they live from northern Mexico to northern Argentina. Hmm. There's more than 1,400 species of bats around the world. And only three of those, more than 1,400, are vampire bats. That is, that they feed on the blood of other vertebrates, mostly larger vertebrates like tapir and deer and wild pigs and pacas and rabbits and things like that. But truly, they are just one more type of species in the world. They happen to be parasites, meaning that they feed on the blood of living animals. So they are also a key element to keep populations of wild mammals safe and healthy. From the three species of vampire bats, only one really causes problems. And I wouldn't say really it causes problems. We set the stage for them to become a problem for ourselves. Mm -hmm. When the Europeans came to this continent with cattle, etc., vampire bats were very limited by the availability of their prey because they were living on the blood of animals that were very rare in the environment. But of course, if you bring cattle and horses and pigs and so on, well, that is setting the stage, setting the table for an animal that feeds on those things. So they overwent, underwent a very big population explosion. And that is what we call a, a problem today. But I'm sorry, the problem was created by us, not by them. Right, right. That just makes me think about, in that same BBC documentary, they mentioned that bats were revered by the Mayans. And there was a bat god. I was going to say a bat dog, because I keep thinking of <laughs> dogs and bats, and they are kind of similar <laughs> to me. <laughs> look similar. (laughs) Before the Europeans came to this continent, 
but enjoyed a very positive public image, not only in Mexico, with the Incas, in the Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, bats were really revered, like you say, by many cultures around the world. Even today, if you go to the Forbidden Palace, for example, in Beijing, close to Beijing, and you pay attention to the carvings, you are going to find bats all over the place. In Mandarin, the word for bat is bian fu, and they in China have a symbol called wu fu, which is five bats linked by the wings. And those five bats represent good health, long life, happiness, wealth, and well-being overall. So even today, you have those positive images, but they're like subdued because of the overwhelming negative publicity. And now that Halloween is coming, Sapna, I have to remind you that we use bats almost in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, using them to scare people off. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be thanking them. There are people who celebrate bats during this month of October. This is the month of the bat that we've been celebrating for 20 years. But truly, there's no reason to be scared of bats. There's really no reason. The Maya had, as you say, the Zot god. And you go to any, any archaeological sites of the Maya, and you will find representations of the Zot that was also a representation of one part of the Maya calendar that actually coincides, because it's this very part of the year right now, coincides with the happiest times of the year, which is the harvest. They are harvesting corn right now, and this is the moment for festivals, for abundance, for happiness, for dances, etc. And that is all connected to that. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into this some more, but uh, it shouldn't surprise any of our listeners that you are now known as the Batman of Mexico, and I dare I say the Batman of the world. (laughs) How did you get that very cool title? Well... When you work on bats, because it is an unusual activity, people immediately connect bats with people, and then they start calling you Batman. But really, it didn't stick until David Attenborough, none other than David Attenborough, a man that I have admired all my life, who has been a, a role model for me and hopefully for many others, because he's an amazing individual. We need 20,000 more David Attenboroughs in the world. He narrated a documentary that the BBC produced on me in 2014. And because he narrated it, he said, well, I mean, you're the Batman. Do you mind if I call you the Batman? I don't (laughs) mind David Attenborough calling me the Batman. I don't mind anybody calling me the Batman. If what I want is to get the message across, to get the information that bats are really beneficial and absolutely crucial for the ecosystem functioning, for our everyday life, for everyday well-being. And all I want is that information to cross. They can call me whatever they want, Batman, Batman's grandmother. I don't care. All I want is that these people get the right information. Yeah, it's really catchy. And I think that has helped create some awareness around the work that you do. So 
we went from vampire bats in your bathroom when you were growing up to now the lesser long-nosed bats that has sort of been the kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of been like the foundation of your work, trying to basically enhance the awareness between human well-being, farming, food production, and bats as essential pollinators to food production. So tell us about the lesser long-nosed bat. It was in decline about 50 years ago, and today there are millions that are in the wild and people who are also involved in defending these bats, and you have been instrumental in this success. Yeah, so if you can tell us why they were in decline and what was the key to your success and how can other conservationists replicate your success? Very interesting question, Sapna. Let me backtrack a little and tell you, go back to your friend, the bat that you found in Austin, the Mexican free-tail bat, because that species has also taken a lot of my work. I've been lucky enough to be part of an amazing group in the U.S., in Canada, in Mexico, many other places where we are documenting the ecosystem services provided by the insect-eating bats, such as the Mexican retail. And because of that, we have shown that uh, just in the northern fringe of Mexico, we have about 20 to 30 million Mexican retail bats. Each million Mexican retail bats destroys about 10 tons of insects every night, 70% of which are agricultural pests, mostly corn pests, cotton pests, rice pests, and so on and so forth. So you can imagine what would happen if we lose those Mexican retails overnight or all the bats. I mean, within two, three months, we wouldn't have any crops left. Mm. But besides that, uh, lesser long-nosed bat and other nectar-feeding bats have also taken quite a bit of my research. In the 80s, I was part of a group of the Fish and Wildlife Service to assess the state of the two species of long-nosed bat, the lesser long-nosed bat and the Mexican long-nosed bat, and we came to the conclusion that they, they were certainly endangered. The main threat being basically lack of knowledge by the local people going into the cave, going into the roost and disturbing the bat in the wrong time of the year when they're having their babies, etc. That's the worst moment for you to go into a cave and disturb the bat. So we started listing them in the U.S. They were listed in 1988 as endangered. And then in 1994, we created the Mexican list of endangered species and they were listed as threatened, both species. And right after, we started the recovery plan, the recovery actions for both species including, of course, not only environmental education to tell the local people how absolutely crucial these animals are for the pollination of many ecologically and economically important species of plants, including columnar cacti, the cacti that you see in Western movies and so on, but also the agaves, which are the source for things like tequila, mezcal, bacanora, raicilla, and other alcoholic beverages that are crucial for the Mexican identity and for the Mexican economy. So little by little, with environmental education, with lots of research and lots of on-the-ground conservation, protecting one cave after another, one cave after another, with the help of the Mexican federal government, but also with the help of the local people, then we were able, 25 years later, to show that all of the caves, we have been following 15 caves for 20 years, 
all of the case were either stable or growing, and we have new roots. Mm. That, of course, gives you the message that, yes, this species has recovered. And then we were very lucky that we were filming the Batman in 2013, the BBC film, and that is when the Ministry of the Environment of Mexico decided to announce to the Mexican public that this was the first species of mammal that would recover because of a recovery plan. So we announced it, and it's part of the documentary. It's in the uh, PBS player. If you want to see it, it's there. So right now, I can feel that we've made a lot of progress since then. We have a lot more work to do because the other species, the Mexican long-nosed bat, is endangered in Mexico and in the U.S., and we need to continue pushing for its conservation. But the lesser long-nosed bat is a recovered species, yes. Yeah, that's amazing. In your own lifetime, to be able to see all your hard work come to fruition, like that is so rare. It just makes me think about this recent news where the EPA, I believe, announced that 23 species in the U.S. are officially extinct. And it just broke my heart. And then in other reports, they talk about how many more flora and fauna species we're losing, and we don't even know that they're going extinct. So for me, it was to see that in the documentary, I was like, wow, this is like a miracle, I feel. And it like gave me a lot of hope that we can do conservation in a way where we're working with people through education and kind of empowering them to see like, this is your natural habitat. These are like your bats as well, and you should take care of them because they will give you the tequila that you need or like they're fundamental to your livelihood, right? But also to see, help policymakers see that, hey, it's worth it protecting these caves and these natural lands rather than developing them. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these lessons that you learn over the course of decades, when it should actually be very obvious to everyone, we are connected to nature. We are one with nature. We depend on nature for everything we do. Biodiversity is at the front center of all of our well-being. And we have to do everything we can to make sure that biodiversity remains as it is and recovers as much as possible. I mean, for example, right now we have a project here in Mexico City where we're looking at how nectar-feeding bats are using the landscape of the city. It's really mind-blowing, Sapna, to think that wild animals are coexisting with us, that wild animals are willing to continue extending an olive branch to human beings and say, okay, guys, you invaded our home. You destroyed our home. You are building concrete and crystal and cement and pavement all over our natural areas. Well, okay, here's an olive branch to tell you that we can coexist. If you just give us a chance, just give us a chance. And there's bats all over the city right now, all over. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, again, I didn't notice bats until like that one encounter with the Mexican retail. And here in Columbus, I noticed there actually, there was one day I was just sitting outside at dusk and I thought I heard bats and I like I could see some things flying in the, in the darkness. I was like, I don't think those are birds. And then just 
upon like careful observation, I was like, those are bats. I would have never expected. But like you're saying, they're living amongst us and we're just not attuned to it. And especially you living in Austin, just go to Congress Avenue Bridge and you will see a colony of about a million Mexican free tail bats there that were saved by a champion of bats. Uh, who decided to save the bats around the world. So those bats are there because of him. And now, of course, people take it as the main attraction in Austin. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful site. And we've replicated that all over the world now. Yeah. It's really, really cool to see the bats just flying away and it's hearing their little squeaks and the flutter of their wings. It's really a magical moment, I must say that. So you said that there is a lot more work to do. Clearly, we still need to ensure that the habitats of the lesser long-nosed bats are protected. You mentioned there's also the Mexican long-nosed bat, correct? Mm -hmm. What are the challenges to its existence? The Mexican long-nosed bat has always been a lot more rare than the lesser long-nosed bat. It is also a migratory species. But we know a lot less about them. For example, we know of a single mating cave of that particular species that is not one hour south of my house right here in Mexico City. And we're trying to protect it. But unfortunately, there's a lot of obscure interest in people who want to build their own weekend house. Living in Mexico City, they want to go to this incredible place, Tepoztlán, in south of the city and build their houses. I'm working with the government to stop that destruction because if we lose that one cave, we lose the entire species. This is the only cave in which these bats mate. And then they're here now. This is what, October. They arrived here in early October. They're going to stay here through the winter. And then they disappear from this cave in February or March. And then they fly north. And they have their babies in the north of Mexico. Those three caves that we know of, the three maternity colonies that we know of, are protected. But we need to secure the migratory corridor as well. Mm -hmm. So we're using something called pit tag readers, pit tags, which are little things the size and the shape of a grain of rice that are inserted under the skin of the animal. And then you can follow them around. If you catch them again, you read the pit tag that they have and you know where this bat was labeled, was marked, etc. That is telling us that, yes, indeed, these bats, the females migrate north and the males remain here in central Mexico year round. Mm. But we don't know exactly what are the migratory routes, what's the specific stepping stone caves that they use, because we need to protect those caves as well. That is part of the problem. The other part of the problem, of course, is their own food source, which is agave. And the agave, like I said before, is the source for mezcal, for tequila, and so on. So for the past five or six years, we've been working with the tequila and mezcal industry to help them understand that they have these unexpected partners from which their entire industry depends. If they lose the bats, they're not going to have tequila. They're not going to have mezcal. So we've asked them to allow 5% and only 5% of the agaves to flower instead of harvesting them before they flower so that they maximize 
the amount of sugar and therefore the amount of alcohol that they produce, they have to allow only 5% of the agaves to flower. And then the University of Mexico gives them this label saying that the University of Mexico and the Tequila Interchange Project tells them that this is a bat-friendly mezcal, bat-friendly tequila. And that helps the consumer understand that this is a better way of shipping tequila, you know? More and more companies are joining in this case, but we need a lot more work still. How do you determine, and it's just a side question here, is how do you determine that 5% of the agave is enough for the bats to still sustain? Very good question, Sapna. When you have an agave field, you have about 4,000 agaves in one hectare. That is orders of magnitude more than the average density of agaves in the natural ecosystem. So 5% mimics that density, and 5% is going to feed about 100 bats in each hectare. 100 bats feeding on each hectare is enough to make a difference for these bats so that they don't have to really go too far away, etc. We know that these bats are very, very powerful flyers flying up to 100 kilometers from their roost to their feeding grounds and back. But we have seen that all of the agaves in that area have pretty much disappeared. So we need to replace them with flowering agaves. And the tequila industry and the mezcal industry are doing their part. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. The one other question that I was curious to know as I was watching the documentary was, I believe they said it took you 20 years for you and your team to find the migratory route of the lesser long-nosed bats. That is to a certain level, Zapna. Yeah. We don't know yet the details. We know that they spend the winter in central and southern Mexico. And we know that they spend the summer in northern Mexico and the southwest of the United States, specifically in the states of Arizona and New Mexico. We know that they have the biggest maternity colonies in the summer in the north of Mexico. And we also know that these are females that are not there in the winter. And then the colonies in the center and south of Mexico swell up. They are swelling up right now with the females that went up to give birth to their babies and they're returning with their babies, with their pups, with their volant offspring to these caves. Little by little, we have followed each and every cave, showing that their numbers swell in central Mexico. They swell in the winter and then they dwindle down in the summer. And the opposite is happening in the north. You go to those caves in the summer and they're full of bats. But if you go in the winter, they're not there. So just connecting two and connecting the dots is helping us understand that. That is not enough. Yeah. We are waiting. I have right now a very good friend in the University of Tel Aviv in Israel who has put miniature GPS units that communicate with a satellite and is telling us where some bats in Israel are. Mm. This is the first time that anybody has attempted to have a satellite capable GPS unit on board of a bat. But because that is working with bats in the desert of Israel, 
we know that this is going to work with a lesser known as bat in the deserts of Mexico. Right. So in May of 2022, we are going to deploy, and I can't wait. You can That's imagine exciting. the level of anxiety and anticipation and excitement that I have, because finally in May of this coming year, we're going to be able to deploy those GPS units. And finally, we're going to be able to know pinpoint exactly what are the key areas that these bats need protection for to keep their migration safe. Sorry, I'm just feeling like the palpitations of my heart. Exactly. Imagine myself, right? Yeah, because when I was watching the documentary, I was like, we can do that for birds. Why can't we find something small enough for the bats? And then there was a part where you were using the UV powder. I was like, there's got to be better technology out there. Like, But it's great that it's here now and you can actually like, You've got your own bat camera now. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank God for technology. It's unbelievable what you can do these days with technology. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I would love to like check in with you again to see what you all have learned. That would be really awesome. Absolutely. By all means. I hope that we're going to have the results in November, October, November, a year from now. So then maybe we can touch base again and give you an update. Of course, yeah, it'd be yeah, my yeah. pleasure. And definitely, like, I hope you'll be able to give a, an update on Instagram as well so that people who are like following your great work can see oh, that yeah. as well. For sure. While I could talk about bats for hours, you just like have this wealth of knowledge. You know, just following your Instagram, I saw that you went to, you've been to my home country of Kenya. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. I wonder if we have bat experts in Kenya. And then I was wondering, I just had like other string of thoughts is like beyond Mexico, you work across the world to educate people and other conservationists about your research and the value of bats. And I'm assuming also that you help kind of build their capacity around how to do research around the bats, right? So. I'm just thinking, like, how do you go about creating more local conservationists, biologists, experts who are like indigenous to their countries to become bat experts, for example? How do you do that? It's actually easier than you think, Sapna, because bats are so fascinating that whenever you start talking about bats, you immediately get the attention of the people. I've been giving lectures and seminars and talks and conferences, etc., around the world for many decades. And whenever I give a new talk in a particular country, wherever it is, Asia, Africa, whatever, people come at the end and they say, oh gosh, how can I get engaged? Well, you're engaged now. You are engaged now. We bad biologists, we get together. You've never seen a more fun group of people than when bad biologists come together <laughs> because we're talking about bad all the time, we just flood the local bar and start talking about bats. And soon enough, the bartender and the local patrons are talking about bats as well. <laughs> so because of that, right now, I can tell you that I have projects or students in 16 countries around the world, including Kenya, but also Uganda and Rwanda and South Africa and others in Africa. And in the particular case of Kenya, you have your own Batman of Kenya, and that is Professor Paul Webala from Masai Mara University. Paul is an amazing friend who has been uncovering an incredible wealth of information about African bats, specifically Kenyan bats, but his influence again is expanding 
from Ethiopia to Uganda to Rwanda to the DRC and so on and so forth. Right. So Paul has been a friend. We've been publishing together. We've been working together. I brought him here to the Peruvian Amazon to teach with me. I put together this group, Global South Bats, in which Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans are joining forces to show that we have a lot to learn from each other and we have a lot to benefit from each other and to each other. So Global South Bats is my new initiative that is really helping me empower, as you say, the local people who want to do something with bats and to let them know that they're not alone. And no offense, Sapna, but that they do not depend on people from the U.S. or people from Europe telling them how to do, what to do, etc. Yeah. This is Africans working with Africans and with Latins and with uh, Asians and the same with Latins and the same with Asians. And that is the best way of making progress in a globalized world like this because we're helping each other. We have lots of collaborating projects, lots of exchanges and so on. That's really cool because that was my other question is how can we create more space for our own local like experts, biologists? Because I just go back to my experience of when I finished my environmental studies degree, I wanted to go back home and give back to my home country. But I found that the environmental space was really dominated by these large international nonprofits like WWF, African Wildlife Federation. And I'm not trying to throw shade or anything. Like I'm sure they're trying to change their ways and the Nature Conservancy and even the UNEP. Like your headquarters is in Africa, but the people who are leading the agenda are mostly Western expatriates. Like I didn't even know about the Batman in Kenya. Like you're telling me about him, which is like, great. So like, how can we, the kind of like respect that you have been able to gain like globally and in your home country, and now you're celebrated as an expert in conservation. And an example is like, you're a National Geographic Explorer. How can we extend that to other like Asian, Latin American, African conservationists? And Kenya does have like a National Geographic Explorer Shivani Bala, who's a lion conservationist, but she's had to work really, really hard to get that kind of recognition. And she still works really hard. So how can we help elevate them some more? And you've given some examples. Yeah, it is very true what you're saying, Sapna, in the sense that us in Africa, Asia, Latin America, having to work twice or three times more than anybody in Europe or in the US, because they already have the attention of organizations like WWF, Conservation International, etc. We have to work a lot more to get the attention. Mind you, you in Kenya have quite a few explorers. I mean, my very good friend, Paula Kahumbu, that knows you as well, has her own TV show that airs in open TV in Kenya called Wildlife Warriors. Mm-hmm. And of course, Paula is featuring people like Paul Webala, who is another National Geographic Explorer, who is my friend, the Batman of Kenya. And pretty soon, in the next couple of months, she is going to air her Wildlife Warriors episode dealing with Paul Webala. What we have to do is, again, to empower ourselves. And I have been uh, nominating people that I know have what it takes to be National Geographic Explorers or Rolex Laureates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
as long as they are from Africa, from Asia, or from Latin America. I am not, I'm sorry, my friends from Europe or from the U.S., I'm not going to promote you. I am going to promote the people who really need it, which is the Africans, the Asians, and the Latin Americans. Yeah, that's great. It's nice to hear that you all are advocating for each other. And one thing that I did see, like, when I worked in Kenya and in India is, like, they're there. They're doing the work. They're just not getting the kind of recognition for their own hard work. We are all reinventing the wheel by ourselves independently, completely in isolation, with no knowledge that other people in Africa or in Asia have been looking at the exact same problem. But because we're isolated, we don't talk about that. We don't know about the lessons and about the solutions that other people have come up with. So this Global South Bats is just one step. We want to have a Global South Conservation Network. That would be very cool. I was going to say, when you're talking about being in the bar with your other bat biologists, I was like, I wish I was a fly on the wall <laughs> to hear this conversation. Well, we're coming to Austin, you know, next year. We're going to yeah. have uh, international bat meetings in Austin, Texas. So. Well, I'm not in Austin anymore. I'm not in Austin anymore, oh. but I will make a point to try and be there. That'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, This has been such a fun conversation and ah, man, I would love to catch up with you again, especially as your research grows and you have a better understanding of your bat kin. (laughs) So we'll go into the lightning round of our interview. And it's basically, I ask four questions and you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. That's why they call it the lightning round. So the first question I have here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? That's not easy to say, but I'm going to mention two books. One is Life on Air by David Attenborough, of course, and that is his biography. And another one is The Log of the Sea of Cortez by John Steinbeck, who did an incredible job at bringing to the forefront what biologists do out there in the wild. And how do we live our lives? And why is that important? So those two things have been my compass all along. Wow. Thank you for sharing those two gems. What is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I am constantly asking myself, what else can I do? What else can I change in my everyday life to help biodiversity? And I really invite you, Sapna, and all of your listeners to think about what can you do to change the horribly negative impact that we have. We're too many and we're extracting too many resources. So for example, this morning I was able to bring down my shower time to, I've been at four minutes for like seven years. Now I'm now down to three minutes in the shower. Wow. It's true that I have a certain advantage, right? (laughs) Because my hair doesn't take long to wash. (laughs) But seriously, trying to think, you know, from refusing to eat shrimp to declining to eat any cattle, any meat in your diet, to recycling, to replanting fields, to helping pollinators by planting pollinator-friendly plants and so on. There's a myriad, there's a ton of things that everyone can do that is not going to be a major hurdle for your life and that you are going to 
do good to the world, and you're going to feel good about it. So I'm constantly looking at my habits and thinking, what else can I do? And that has been very, very helpful to me. Yeah. Having a, taking personal responsibility for your actions. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was going to ask you, though, is like, I'm sure there are thoughts about bats in those, the same string of thoughts of what can you do better for the environment? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Most definitely. We have a bat-friendly rice crop coming up very soon. Oh, yeah. Right here in Mexico, in the state of Morelos, they have a denomination of origin rice. And we started working in the beginning of this year to show them how bats are absolutely crucial. And again, it's Mexican free tails. And now they're harvesting what is going to become the first ever bat-friendly rice crop in the world. Oh, I'm a big rice eater. I'm South Indian. And South Indians eat a lot of rice for every meal. It's like for dinner, for lunch. I've reduced significantly, but I had no idea that bats were important for the rice plant. Well, what they do is they actually eat the pests of rice. Yeah. Like they do for the corn as well. Exactly. What's the best piece of advice you've received? That I have received? Come down from the ivory tower and think outside the box. Those two things, and I've used them for 30 years or more. We as uh, scientists tend to think that we're a different breed and that the world does not deserve us. We have to come down from that ivory tower and think as just one more human being here and that we have a role to play as one more human being. Mm -hmm. And thinking outside the comfort zone is another absolutely essential thing that somebody told me many years ago, thinking that if we as uh, academics, we remain in our offices, in our labs, in our field sites, etc., with our cozy collection of students and colleagues, then we're really not having much of an impact in the world. The fact that we publish a paper has absolutely nothing to do with how can we really benefit the world. We have to sit down with that paper, with the decision makers, with the landowners, with the people that really facilitated the work that we did in the field and explain to them what were the key messages that we learned in the process of doing that study and then helping them implement those changes. That has been an absolutely essential part of my work for the past 30 years. Yeah. As you were talking about that, as like the work of conservationists, environmentalists is so much more in addition of understanding human nature interactions, understanding nature better. It's also being able to articulate and communicate it to people who wouldn't necessarily think about this stuff or who we need to be involved in the process. And I feel like that should be in our curricula is how to communicate these issues well enough. And I think that was kind of fundamental to your work in trying to save the lesser long nose bat is you were able to collaborate with policymakers, translate the science of that to them, translate the economics of the importance of bats to the mezcal and the tequila producers, and also the farmers or the community members who may have had an irrational fear towards bats sucking their blood, (laughs) you know? Exactly. You communicated that to them. I think in this day and age, it's more important than ever before in the history of the human species that 
science communication is absolutely essential. So what you're doing, Sapna, is absolutely crucial. We need to replicate you many times because you see this day and age that how easy it is to manipulate the collective mind of the people. Any kind of misleading information, for whatever reason, takes a hold on the people's minds, and that becomes a historical truth. Yeah. And it's not the truth at all. So today, more than ever before, it's more important to teach children and students about how to communicate science, how to make sure that what you're reading is real, or it, has it been manipulated or somebody is behind with a hidden agenda trying to change the way you think, uh, we really need to have a very clear understanding of how best to verify whatever we're reading, whatever we're listening in the context of science, in the context of politics, in the context of everything. Everything is now under the veil of doubt. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And, you know, a lot of how we consume information is how we feel of, about the person who's communicating to us. And if as science communicators, we can't appeal to people's hearts, their rationality, then whatever we're saying is, is not going to make much of a difference, even if we're giving them the facts. And we've seen it not working with the vaccinations and people doubting the science of it. And we're like, we've got facts, but it's how we've communicated it. Exactly. So my final question here is, besides communicating with bats, what is your superpower? (laughs) I doubt that I have a superpower. I do believe in the magic of passion. If you're passionate about what you do, you're fine. You're going to make a change in the world and you are going to be happy as long as you do not lose your passion. Believe me, Sapna, I'm old enough to tell you, to be able to tell you that I'm not losing my passion. No way. When I'm 110 or whatever I get to be, I am going to be as passionate about bats as I am today and as I have been since I was 13 years old. Yeah, and you've said that quite a few times. That's something that stuck with me. It's like, there's one part in the documentary where you're like, Peace of mind for you is being in the cave and you're like, I can just sleep here, take a nap. <laughs> and you're like, I've this is how I felt when I was 13 you. years old. It's like, that's <laughs> so important to be able to tap into that and remind yourself. Exactly. Well, you said you've taken naps in caves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's so peaceful. I'm sure so it quiet. is. So <laughs> quiet. So dark. It's so beautiful. <laughs> And when you are really tired from climbing and hiking and running and walking for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers, and you finally get to the cool temperatures and the peace and quiet of a cave, of course you take a nap. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just got to lay your head somewhere. And caves are quite cool. So, exactly. Well, Rodrigo, thank you so much again for being a guest on the podcast and for telling your story. I feel so honored. I feel like maybe I've captured some stories that have not been in the media, maybe. Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again and looking forward to follow you on your journey. 
Wonderful being here with you, Sapna. Thank you for inviting me and please keep up the great work that you're doing. Thank you for all the encouragement. It means a lot to me. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings. 